try that again. Good morning. <laughs> I am excited to be here this morning, excited to bring a message to you, and our sermon this morning will begin with a rather lengthy story, a story of great faith. Now, I love stories of faith. You read about Abraham and the amazing faith that he had. You read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Stephen, and the, these amazing people of faith. I love to read stories in the Bible about people of great faith. But almost as good, although you know, clearly not as good, because you can't be as good as the Bible, is uh, extra-biblical stories about people of great faith. And that is where uh, our sermon this morning will begin. So uh, having said that, I'd like us to turn to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel 11 is going to set the stage because this story takes place in 164 B.C. 164 B.C. is where our story will take place, and its roots are set up in Daniel 11. So Daniel 11 is a very odd chapter. Uh, Most biblical prophecy, uh, as you know, uh, is kind of general, and uh, there are like multiple fulfillments, and it's kind of complex. But Daniel 11 is absurdly specific. And uh, in starting around verse 29, which is where we're going to begin reading in a moment, we get a prophecy about this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. And uh, he's the worst. I mean, that's, that, he's just terrible. And he is persecuting the Jews uh, terribly. And this story happens after Antiochus goes down to go fight the Ptolemies in Egypt, and it doesn't go very well, so he turns around, and he's really angry because, you know, he just lost the battle, and so he wants to feel better about himself, so he goes and beats up on the Jews. And uh, this is something that Daniel prophesies here like 300 years earlier. Uh, It says in, in Daniel chapter 11, starting in verse 29, At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Katim shall come against them, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and he shall take away the regular burnt offerings, and he will set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So, this is what Daniel prophesies, and as it happens, in 167, Antiochus does come, he does fight the Egyptians, he does turn back, he comes to Jerusalem, and there's been something of a rebellion there, although that's more an appearance than actuality. And so, he comes in, And he just uh, starts attacking them. And like 80,000 Jews are enslaved or killed. He runs into the temple and he he desecrates it. He puts up uh, this abomination, which makes desolate, uh, which is no one is quite sure exactly what that is. Uh, He makes an altar on top of the regular altar and he offers pagan sacrifices there. He takes the the shields and the, the gold things from the temple and he takes them for himself. He finds the people who have copies of the law, and he burns the law, and he burns the people who have copies of the law. He kills all the circumcised people. He forces people to eat meat. It's to eat like pig meat, unclean meat. It's terrible. And yet, something happens when he does this. 
There are certain people, yes, many of them taken captive, many of them hurt, and many of them sort of subdued out of their Judaism. But there are a few select people, one of them by the name of Judas Maccabeus, and this guy is awesome. And he runs out into the wilderness, he and this ragtag group of people, and they effectively declare guerrilla warfare on uh, the, on the pagans and on their Jewish brethren who have ceased their Jewishness and they're attacking cities and it's, it's, it's crazy. They're having in wild victories that this should not happen. And obviously Antiochus Epiphanes, he doesn't like this. So he sends some people to go fight them. And uh, they do, but again, impossible odds. Okay, so the first, and, uh, the, the first one, he sends... 5,000 infantrymen and 1,000 cavalry against 3,000 men that Judas has, except one huge disadvantage that the Jews have in this fight, they don't have any weapons. And yet, despite the fact that they are outmatched two to one and they have no weapons, they start praying. And Judas Maccabeus, who is a great warrior and a great Bible student, he encourages his people. He says, remember what God did at the Red Sea. He says, he doesn't need us. He can have victory all on his own. Let's fight with courage. And they go and they, they beat all the bad guys and they plunder their camp. But now they have weapons. But they're not out of the woods yet because now, remember that first the Judas and his friends, they were outnumbered two to one. But now they come back 60,000 men against these 3,000 men and 5,000 infantry. It's like, it's crazy. And yet, again, they pray. He says, remember what Jonathan and his armor bearer did. Remember how God gave them great victory by just two people. Now, God can do that with us because that's what God does. And so they go and they fight. And again, against impossible odds, 60,000 to 3,000, they beat the bad guys back. But now, now something new and exciting happens because it's not just that they've won in victory, but now the enemy has fled and they have access to Jerusalem again. So they go into Jerusalem and they see the temple, which has been desecrated. They see, I mean, bushes growing up in the tabernacle. They see the pre-sanctuary. It's like, it's a terrible time. And they start mourning and they're very sad. But then they rise up and they take action and they beat the bad guys out and they, they take away the abominations that make desolate. They purge the temple. They take away the, the profane altar and they, they bury it and they set things back right. And it's amazing. They, they purify the temple, they rededicate it, they sacrifice offerings to God, and they rejoice. They hang back up the crowns and, and the stuff, they bake bread, they burn incense, they set the temple back the way it's supposed to be. And as a result of this, they are joyous. As a result of their great victory and the rededication, they say, this is such a momentous event. We need to celebrate this every year from now on. And so for eight days, from the 25th day of Kislev in the Jewish calendar, uh, for eight days after that, they celebrate that this happened. And they still do that today. They did this in Jesus' time. In fact, in John 10, we read Jesus uh, did the Feast of Dedication. Except you probably don't know it as the Feast of Dedication. You know it as Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the Hebrew word for dedication. And Hanukkah this year happens to be next week. Uh, well, starting next Sunday and then, so I guess, two weeks from now. And I've been thinking about this a lot because... I know I'm not Jewish, but these are the people of God. This is a victory that God had for his people. And we are the people of God by promise. And so whenever I hear of a story like this, 
I think about the great victories God does for his people of all times. And I feel like this is a part of our sacred history. And so I, I like to read these stories. I like to think about them. But we're not going to be discussing that as much. I want to talk about two things that are really applicable in our lives from this. Because as I said, around the world, Jews are going to be celebrating the Feast of Dedication in two weeks. And I think as this happens, we should take time. We've got people out there in the world who are thinking about God. This should be a time that we're thinking about God too. And so I want to talk about two things from the Feast of Dedication, things that we can study uh, and learn from Hanukkah and that we can be reflecting on as the world is reflecting on God. And so the first of them is, I mean, think about this tremendous victory that God had for his people. The forces of evil had taken what God, what was rightfully God's, and God empowered his people against impossible odds to take back what belongs to God. And that's the first point I want to make. The second one is, of course, we're talking about dedication. We're talking about the temple. We know that we are the temple of God. And so in the second half of the sermon, we're going to talk about how we need to be, make sure that our temple is dedicated, to make sure that our temple has been purged from all the evil in it. So first, let's talk about victories. Let's talk about taking back what is God's. Because I don't think there's any doubt that Satan is on the prowl, that he and the forces of evil are trying to take what belongs to God. I'll show you a few passages here is 2 Corinthians 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Here, Satan has taken captive people. He's blinded their eyes so that they don't see what God is doing. Here's another passage, Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Used to, you were followers of the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That Satan is trying to take what belongs to God. He's trying to control the people of this world. And that is not what we were made to do. We were not made to serve Satan. We were not made to be bound by sin. We were made to serve God. And so just as God empowered Judas Maccabeus to take back what belongs to God, I think God tells us the same thing. Turn with me over to Galatians chapter 6. In Galatians 6, we see this is a command that we are to help our brother when they are caught in trespasses. See, Satan, he's on the prowl. He's trying to control us. He's trying to take us captive. If he can't take us captive, he'll go for our neighbors, our friends, our brothers and sisters here. And in Galatians 6, we are told, starting in verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, uh, he deceives himself. Here we see, if your brother is caught in trespasses, entrapped in sin, we have a task. We have the spirit of God, we who are spiritual, Restore such one. We know that the spirit of God, among many things, is connected with power. You think about Samson. He was filled with power by the spirit. So God empowers his people to rescue those who, were caught in, who are caught in transgressions. That when we 
no people around us, when we see our brothers captured by sin, that we have the power of God to go reach out to them and help them and pull them back to God. Turn over to Matthew chapter 18. This is probably the most popular text for uh, rebuking and encouraging our brethren. But I want to point something out to you in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, I think all of Matthew 18 can really be seen through the lens of verse 14. Matthew 18, verse 14 says, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I mean, before that, he talks about, you know, if you're in sin, take your eye out. If you cut your hand off, go to whatever links you need to, to, to keep you from dying in hell because it's not the will of the Father that any should perish. And then, of course, in this section, we got the, the lost sheep. The, God goes to extraordinary lengths to bring his sheep back because it's not the will of the Father that any should perish. And then we get to verse 15. We read, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that, that every charge may, estab- may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, we ask, why should we go talk to our brother if he's caught in sin? And I think the answer is pretty simple. It is not the will of the Father that any of his little ones should perish. God is not, does not desire that we should perish. He does not want us to stay captured by sin. And so if we see our brothers entrapped in sin, captured by the enemy, if we see what is rightfully God's, taken captive by the forces of evil, then it needs to be in our our hearts, in our, our courage to go and fight against the forces of evil, to go and take it to our brothers, to go talk to him and say, hey, you're going down a bad path. I, can I help you? And if he doesn't listen to you, then take someone else. And if he doesn't listen to them, then bring the church. And of course, we understand that at the end of this, there are some brethren who will not listen. I mean, we can't force somebody to serve God. And that is an unfortunate reality, that as we go and we try and talk to our brothers, we try and talk to people out in the world, some people want to be blinded by sin. And that is sad, but we can't let that take the fire and the courage out of us. That we are here to do God's will. We are here to take the message to people out in the world. And so we've got to have courage. We've got to go talk to our friends, talk to our family, talk to our coworkers, talk to our brothers if we find them in sin. We've got to take the message out. We've got to share it. And we've got to crusade against the forces of evil who are trying to take captive our friends and family in sin. We've got to show them the truth. And yes, this might be costly. It is certainly going to be discouraging. It's going to be hard. And we're going to require patience. I mean, Judas and his friends, I said, this story, the story of Hanukkah, takes place in 164. The the abomination of desolation, 167. So three years, Judas and his friends are running around in the desert. Like, it took time. And they're clearly not out of the woods after that, if you keep reading in the story. Like, these things take time. We can't let ourselves be discouraged when it's hard to take the message to people, to liberate them from the power of evil. But it is God's will that we do it. God's will that no one should perish. And so we got to be out there spreading it. And of course, some people will, and that is their own fault. But we need to do what we can to spread the gospel. Like I said, it's difficult, but I think 
if we remember one thing, turn with me to James 5. Keep this in mind. It will give us the strength we need because it can be hard from day to day. It can seem like we're spinning our wheels. It can seem like we're losing a lot and gaining so little. We need to keep in mind what is it that we're fighting for. James chapter 5, the last two verses, says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering shall save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. That This is serious. We are saving our brother from death. That it can seem in, in the moment that the immediate thing seems so big and the, the, the future seems so small. And yet we're talking about eternal death and eternal life here. And you have the power to save your friend's soul from death. Go fight with courage and pray that God will allow you to take back what is his from the power of evil. So that's the first thing I want us to think about as the world is reflecting on Hanukkah, as, we're, as we are reflecting on what this holiday means. But second, I mean, it's the Feast of Dedication. So let's talk about dedicating our temple. Keep your finger here in James. We're going to be right back to James. But I want to go to 2 Corinthians because Corinthians is, of course, I mean, the classic area that talks about our body being a temple. And 2 Corinthians chapter 6 talks about what that means for us. 2 Corinthians 6, let's begin in verse 16. 2 Corinthians 6, 16 through 7, verse 1 says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Paul says, you are the temple of God. He wants to dwell among you. He wants to walk among you. But if that's going to be the case, then there are certain ramifications for your life. you got to purge the evil from among you. you got to get sin away from you. you got to be separate, go out of their midst. We've got a verse, uh, chapter 7, cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is a high calling that we need to get sin out of our lives. And what, what does that mean? What does that look like? For that, we're going to go back to James. James, uh, an eminently practical book. And in James chapter 1, starting in verse 22. We'll read through the end of the chapter. He says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
keeping ourselves unstained from the world, being doers. That's what we got to be because sin wants to live in our lives. Evil is trying to influence us. And if we are living passively, it's going to find its way in. Bushes are going to grow up in our temple and we can't let that be. We have to take purity seriously in our bodies. So what is it that James tells us to do? He tells us not just to be uh, hearers of the word, but to be doers. He, he gives us this illustration of the mirror. And I like the illustration of the mirror because it's, it's easy. You know, we, we, we look at ourselves in the mirror, we say, ah, you know, I look good or I don't look good. But something I was thinking about as I was, I was reading this text is uh, so many times I walk past the mirror very quickly. And then I take time to actually look. You know, I got little hairs growing up in the little unibrow space. And I got like pimples in the crease. Like things that I don't notice when I'm not taking time to pay attention. And in the same way, I think we can do that with the scriptures. I mean, we read a scripture like, love your neighbor as yourself. We think, ah, that's easy. I know that one. But then I think about that. Like really think and really look. And I think about the fact that, listen, I feed myself three times a day, more if you count snacks. And like, I take that very seriously. And even, you know, wherever I was financially, I would find a way to make sure I got fed because like, that's, that's like a requirement, you know? But so many times, you know, I pass by people on the side of the road and they've got their little hungry help sign. And I'm like, well, well if I'm hungry, it's an emergency. But if they're hungry, yeah, you know, it's, it's not, really, not really the budget for me. Love your neighbor as yourself. Am I taking care of others the same way that I would take care of myself? Or how about another one? Think about Jesus says, don't be anxious. And you think, ah, you know, I got that one. I'm like the least anxious person I know. But then think about the things you get worried about. I think I get worried about money, which is so silly because I have everything I need. But then I get this little spreadsheet and I'm looking at this. Oh, I I don't know. These these numbers aren't what I want. It's It's so arbitrary. And yet I can get nervous. I get anxious. Instead of being content, we got to look into the law. We got to look closely because it's not just a glance that's going to help us see where we need to improve, see how we need to measure up to Christ. We've got to look. And when we look, we've got to put things into action. That's what he says. Don't just be a hearer, but be a doer. You got to put your charity, put your love into action. And then he gives us three very specific ways. He tells us we've got to bridle our tongue. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm great at controlling my tongue, except when I'm angry or hungry or sleepy. Like, <laughs> it's, it's hard. Or, you know, to take care. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to take care of the nobodies, to take care of the defenseless. You think, oh, well, I'm great at that as long as they, you know, don't live in another country or look different than me or stand by the side of the road or it's inconvenient. No, like, it's hard. And finally, to keep ourselves unstained from the world, that is a challenge. Because as I said, the world is constantly trying to corrupt us. And yet we have to take dedication and purity very seriously. It's hard. I mean, James is kind of mean. You know, I, was, I was happy, you know, living my, my contented life. But he's got to go and point out all these sins to me. No, like, it's hard. But he keeps going. And here we're going to go down to James 4. I want to read just the first 10 verses of James 4. And we'll kind of... Uh, glance through these. So James chapter four, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. 
You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Listen, it's hard to do the things that God would have us to do. I mean, he talks about our passions, the things that really uh, drive us, but they're, they're selfish passions. When we ask for things to use them on ourselves, when we, we get prideful and we, we want to fight each other. And it's hard, but we got to put that away. We have to be humble. We have to be selfless. And then he says in verse 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, friendship is a word that is used um, various ways uh, throughout the course of Bible times. But it's really curious uh, the way that it's used in the story of uh, the Maccabees, the, the, the story that we got the Hanukkah from. The friendship around that time is, kind of has this idea of a political alliance. Uh, you talk about like being a friend of Rome, and uh, you're, you're connected, uh, and you're on their side. And it, it shows up a lot in, uh, in this story of, uh, of the, the perseverance and the faith of these Jews who stood up for the truth, and, and they, were, they were fighting because... The, the bad guys, the, the pagans, they keep offering uh, a friendship and alliance. They go, you know, just, just put away all of your Jewishness and you can be a friend of the king and we'll give you money and we'll give you a nice land and it'll be great for you. When we think about friendship, uh, you know, we use friendship as a more casual sort of way. But when you talk about alliance, you can only be allied with God or you can be allied with the world. Those are the options. And when we see these incredible examples of faith, the people who refuse to be a friend of the world. I'll give you just one example. Uh, there's a story. Uh, it comes from this time of intense persecution uh, that Antiochus had. There were seven brothers. And uh, each, they're, they're brought, seven brothers and their mother. And they're brought in by Antiochus. And he says, just eat this, this pork and you'll be fine and you'll be a friend and I will, I will bless you. But if you don't, I will kill you. And one by one, starting with the oldest brother and down to the youngest brother, each of them says, no, I refuse to, to, to eat unclean food. I care about the laws of God and I will not turn my back on God. But you, you will be punished for what you do. And one by one, Antiochus and his men scalp these guys and boil them in oil until they die. One by one by one, this mother watches her children die. And this, this is the part I love about this story. This incredible faith, but this mother, as she watches her children display this incredible faith, this is what she says. It says, she encouraged each of them. 
in the language of their ancestors, filled with a noble spirit, she reinforced her woman's reasoning with a man's courage and said to them, I do not know how you came into being in my womb. It was not I who set, who gave you life and breath, nor I who set in order the elements within each of you. Therefore, the creator of the world, who shaped the beginning of humankind and devised the origin of all things, will in his mercy give life and breath back to you again, since you now forget yourselves for the sake of his laws. She says, look, at the beginning of life, the way you came to be is a mystery to me. Yes, I carried you in my womb, but I mean, God knit you together. And in the same way that God knit you together through mysterious means at the beginning of your life, so I know that since you have died for the sake of God and his laws, that he will give you life again. It's amazing. There's so much courage, so much faith in that statement. And so when we are challenged, be a friend of the world or a friend of God, we have to take friendship seriously. And we have to realize that we cannot be stained by the world. We cannot be filled with pride. We cannot be filled with impurity. We have to keep doing what God wants us to do. Keep pushing on, keep purifying ourselves. And so at this time of year, as people are reflecting on the purity of the temple, we need to be thinking about the purity of our temple. Are we letting sin live in our lives? Because I'm, I'm telling you, as I look at my life, I realize that there have been times where I've, I've not uh, taken care of the temple the way I'm supposed to. I've let, I've let things get overgrown. I was thinking about the fact that, you know, God wants his house to be a house of prayer for all nations. I have to say I've been uh, conspicuously absent in my prayer life, and I need to be there more. I need to be more sincere about being with God. We talk about charity. We talk about kindness, and that's something that I've really got to do a better job on, that I've let selfishness take root in the temple, and I've got to, I've got to purge that evil out. We talk about cowardice and fear, the kinds of things that would keep us from taking back what is God's. And I think about when Gideon told us, man, look, if you're afraid, go home. And I, I have to say, maybe that could have been me. There's a fear there, and I've got to put that away too. We have to take honest stock of our lives, look inside and see what is the defiling influence in our lives and purge it from the temple. Remember what God has called us to do, this, this task, this purpose of purity. So I really thank you for the time that you've taken listening. I hope that you've learned a little bit more about Hanukkah, but most importantly, I hope that you have taken this time to consider the cause to which we are called to, to press on, to take back with courage what is rightfully God's, and also to take stock of your life, to look in at your temple and to see what is defiling you and to get it out, to dedicate yourself to God. Thank you so much. We'll now be dismissed to class.